Um, before you leave tonight, also make sure that you take one of your Create and Share kits. Those are for you on the back table. You can pick any one that you want. Just make sure when you leave, you grab one of those so you have it. If you forget, we'll have them here for you at church on Sunday or even at Bunko. We'll make sure you get one. But you're going to want that for your Create and Share. And uh, you'll, you'll read about that uh, later as you kind of continue on in your lesson. Make sure my... All righty, make sure we're moving forward in the right slides. Yes? Yes, so this Tuesday, we'll send out an announcement, but if you'd like to do your Create and Share together with Ruth, she'll be here this Tuesday. We'll give you the details and the time, and you can do your Create and Share um, with her together on Tuesday. Okay, yeah, we'll give you, we'll give you all those good, juicy details. <laughs> all right, so here we are. Uh, this will be the review of Lesson 2, and we'll be covering Chapters 1, 2, and 3 of 1 Corinthians together. So Paul, as we learned last time, and as you've kind of been gathering as you're doing your studies, Paul wrote this first letter, or what we call the first letter, somewhere between 55 and 57 AD to believers who were living in the infamous city of Corinth, all right? So Corinth was really busy, it had international trade because of where it was located on that isthmus and the little canal, that channel they even tried to build there between the two waterways. Um, lots of entertainment opportunities, lots of opportunities for religion, and paganism abounded and sin abounded with that as well. They had a, remember the big huge auditorium or opening that they had, it would seat 20,000 people. It's quite an accomplishment. And they had um, a temple for worshiping Aphrodite, the sex goddess, and they would send in prostitutes, male and female, into the streets. So the saying itself from back then, lived like a Corinthian, meant it was synonymous with being an immoral person. So Paul founded this church, the Corinthian church, when he was on a second missionary journey. We read about that in Acts 18, and we learned he spent a, a year and a half, or 18 months. And how convenient is that? Because we got a chapter number 18, and he was there for 18 months. Now you can remember it forever and ever. Um, after he lived with them, he knew them really well. He got to know them, 18 months, living with them, hanging out. And he, we know he wrote to them another letter that we don't have. We have 2 Corinthians, and we know he also had a fourth. So we know there's four, at least four letters going around. And then actually it turned into a bit of pen pals because there was some back and forth um, lettering. And you'll see that in this next study coming up because he's going to be responding in this couple chapters to a question that they had. So there's this back and forth between them. They have this relationship with them. And what I love about this letter is how practical it is, right? The issues that he addresses are issues that I related to when I was reading through it. Maybe you were relating to it and your experience in church and in your personal life as well. Very practical. And as he addresses those issues, he offers solutions in a sense, but it wasn't just a list of rules. Have you ever been on a board or a committee before where they had to come up with rules, maybe bylaws <laughs> to organize things and make the system run better? So Paul, when you start to think of it, he could have addressed the issues that he was seeing with adding more rules and bylaws, but instead, Paul gets them to the root of their problem and helps them to solve that and to think it through by pointing them to Christ, right? That Christ is the ultimate solution. And so because of this 
Corinthians works for us today. Because if it was just a set of rules, it would have applied pretty specifically to back then. But because it gives us a universal truth about who Jesus Christ is, we can read it today and apply it in our own lives quite well. So Paul opens this letter with some really important reminders, and we might miss them if we just gloss over them ourselves, because they can kind of sound like religious words, right? Maybe words we're not even too familiar with. Let's take a look at chapter 1, verse 1. From Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. So two really important words here. The first word is the word church, right? This word is from the Greek word ekklesia, and the root from this word means to call out, call out. So literally, the church are people who are called out from where they are, what they've been doing, all right? So he says, to the church, the called out ones of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, and called to be saints with all those in every place who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this word sanctified, right following it, saints. This is from another really great Greek word, agiadso. And the root of this word means holy, set apart. Okay? So these are called out ones. They've been called out. And then they've been what? Set apart. All right? So as you visualize that, they've been called out, the ecclesia called out ones, and they are set apart. This word for holy, agiazo, was used um, to, to set aside something that was used for special, something that's not just everyday wear. Maybe you grew up with the fine china that you only pulled out on certain special occasions. That's sanctified china. It's set apart. It's special. It's holy. It's not just everyday, right? But not only is, is he talking about that idea of being called out, but he's trying to help you understand who you are, what your identity is, because you are called out ones, and you've been set apart, you've been made holy, sanctified, made holy, and you are saints. Called to be saints, he's addressing them as saints. Now, oftentimes we kind of think of ourselves, uh, we think of saints as something in a, in a church, maybe in a statue, it's up over there, and maybe we even have a beaded necklace and we wear a little charm about a saint and maybe we even grew up with the religious tradition of maybe even praying to a saint or maybe you've heard of saints that are in charge of things like a saint of your lost keys maybe you pray to your saint of lost keys or saints that help you to to find something or to know something or to be something and you pray to that particular saint well the bible has no concept of that at all you are saints you are called out ones you're the church ecclesia called out and set apart you are sanctified you are saints and goodness knows you don't want anyone praying to you right (laughs) maybe you could help me find my keys though i often need help with that so paul names them calls them and he says i always thank my god for you because of the grace of god that was given to you in christ jesus for you were made rich in him now he's going to talk a little bit later about how uh, of low status they are but here he's just going to build them up and say you were made rich in him in your speech and in every kind of knowledge you know if paul was talking to you today and you were reading this letter from paul today and he said you are called out you are made holy you are are a saint and you were made rich in every way in him would you be sitting there going yes I am that is exactly how I feel about myself today or would you be going I don't feel like that right now I hope no one saw the way I treated my husband in the car on the way over or whatever right so he goes on and he fills them and they're probably reading this and hearing it being read to them and he says just as 
the testimony about Christ has been confirmed among you. So everything he is saying is based on the testimony about Christ, and it's been confirmed so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end. It's like, but wait, there's more right you're called out ones you're sanctified set apart made holy you are you are rich you've been given everything that you need and you're going to be strengthened to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our lord jesus christ god is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship with his son the lord uh, jesus christ our lord so let's break that down look really closely at it. this is so important for us to grasp who are you you are sanctified saints sanctified is means it's already done this is a position that you are in positionally in christ you are sanctified you are set apart you have been made holy it's a done deal it's a fact and you are called to be there's that expectation saints right so it's a done deal that you're sanctified, set apart, made holy, and then you are called to live up to that as saints. That is the expectation. He's saying you are holy, holy ones. You are holy, holy ones. You are called out, set apart, made holy, holy ones. That's who you are. That root word again is agiazo. So in addition to that, you've been given grace. Now grace is unmerited favor. You can never have earned it. It's something that you didn't deserve, but you got Anyway, that should make you go, wow, thank you. Don't you think that's why we say grace at a meal, right? Thank you. It's unmerited favor. Nothing we earned, nothing we ever deserved. In addition to that, you were made rich in every way. Not in part of the way, not in sort of a bit, not in this little category over here, like when you're at church. This is every way, in every aspect, in every corner of every relationship, even the internal relationship and the dialogue that you have with yourself and how you talk to and about yourself inside your own head, you're made rich in every way. Not one area of life that holy ones are not rich. Right? Not one area. Now, of course, get out of your mind and wash it away if you're thinking of any kind of worldly riches. He's not speaking of this. He's speaking of eternal, something that's greater weight than that, of course. So what you can speak and what you can communicate, and for those of you who feel like you bumble and stumble over your words, it's a challenge, and you can go back to this and be reminded, I've been made rich. And anything that I can know and understand, I've been made rich. Whenever any kind of doubt comes into your mind, this is the verse to come back to to remind yourself of who you are. And you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. There is not one gift that God can give that he didn't give. He didn't hold back anything. You're not lacking in any single gift at all. You are completely complete. And in addition to that, in that state, as you are called out, set apart, made holy, rich, blessed, given grace, not lacking any spiritual gift, you're waiting Jesus' return. It only gets better because now you have hope. Because if you're hearing any of this right now about who you are right now, you're thinking, this really stinks down here. <laughs> Something's off. Something's wrong. So he reminds us that we have this hope, and this gives us that expectation to live in. And as we're waiting, we're not just waiting, dragging it on. We are strengthened to the end. So we have this expectation that strength is going to be needed. Can you get an amen on that one? How many of you can say that today you needed that kind of strength, right? And strength will be provided. This is not setting you up for failure. Try hard enough, and maybe this is an expectation 
of what you can have and God will provide. This isn't you hoping you're gonna be good enough because it was what? Already unmerited favor. You were already called out. You were already made holy. You are already a saint. You already received unmerited favor. So you don't have to sit here today wondering if it's all gonna work out. In the end, the strength is going to be provided and you know you're gonna need it, right? And in addition to that, when you get there, you will arrive blameless, blameless. Robes white, perfect, blameless. So all the things and all the times and all the ways it comes back to you about how you're not and how you should have, if you are in Christ, you are called out, you are sanctified, you're set apart, you're a holy, holy one who's been given grace, made rich in every way, not lacking in any spiritual gift, and you're waiting for Christ's return. And while you're waiting, you're going to be strengthened to the end. And when you arrive, you will be blameless. This brings us back to that holy idea of being set apart, not living with the weight of shame or sin in our past and our behavior, because we all have that, don't we? In addition to that, you're not alone. You're not just waiting out there for him, unseen and, and hoping out there. He's given us community. Why? Because you've been called into fellowship, and that's a unique bond. So look to your neighbor. Look to your right. Look to your left. That's a unique bond that you have in this room. We're not alone. We have koinonia. That's the word he's talking about here. And we, we gather around that together in Christ so that when I'm down and I'm not living in this way as a sanctified saint, given grace, made rich in every way, not lacking any spiritual gift, awaiting Christ's return, strengthening to the end, blameless and called into fellowship, when I'm not acting like that, I can trust because you are a woman who's been educated and well understanding of God's word that you're going to remind me of my true identity in Christ because that's what we're doing here because we're not just doing Bible study. We are dwelling in the word and we come together as women who need that encouragement because I'm going to be down and I'm going to need it from you and you're going to need it from your sister to your right and to your left and so who am I well I'm a sanctified saint can you say it now with me I'm a sanctified saint who's been given grace and made rich in every way. I lack no spiritual gift as I wait Jesus' return, knowing I am strengthened to the end and will be blameless. I am part of a unique community where I have been called into fellowship because of the true account of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for me. That is who I am. Can I get an amen on that? That is who we are, ladies. That is who we are. And this is what Paul begins the letter with, right? And for anyone hearing those words wash over them that day, anyone in this moment right now or, or listening to my voice later on, there might be a corner inside of you going, it can't be that simple because I don't always feel like this. <laughs> well, guess what? Good thing it's not based on your feelings. <laughs> this is a done deal. It is a fact. You don't have to base it on your feelings and you, I'll just be honest, you will because I do. And I don't feel like this sometimes, right? So Paul lays it all out, the problems that, that he's going to be starting to address, but he has to get them to this foundation of what has been accomplished because he's going to move on from there and he's going to shift his language and he's going to turn and he's going to say, I urge you I urge you, in light of everything I've just said about who you are, 
He's begging them. Ladies, listen, listen. He could have exhorted them. He could have commanded them. Okay? He could have, admi I, I admonish you. This is a word that he is pleading, I beg you, I beg of you. I, I spent 18 months with you. I know who you are. I know you were taught well. I know you received this truth. I beg you, my brothers and sisters, by the name, the highest thing he could ever beg anybody of anything, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, then to agree together, enter divisions, be united by the same mind and purpose. It's all based on the identity because of what you are, who you are in Christ, what has already been set and accomplished, you need to agree. End your divisions, be united by the same mind and purpose. He says, before God, in Christ, positionally, you're holy. Practically, you're rotten. <laughs> positionally, you're all this, but in practice, hey, this, this is off. One of these things is not like the other. Remember that, right? Right? This is why we believe, though, that you don't lose your salvation, right? You see, because your practice never affects your position, does it? If that's a done deal and you had nothing to do with it, then you cannot have anything to do with losing it. You didn't get yourself into that position. You didn't call yourself out. You didn't make yourself holy. You didn't give yourself unmerited favor. You didn't do any of it. Jesus did it all to you, the free gift of God, right? So positionally sanctified, practically, ugh, such a mess. So from sanctified to such a mess, he urges them, he begs them, agree, end your divisions, be united, have the same mind, have the same purpose. Why? What is there to disagree about? <laughs> what is there to be divided about? Members of Chloe's household, though, have made it clear to me. <laughs> <laughs> that there's quarrels among you. He's like, oh my gosh, she has made it so abundantly clear. <laughs> I can't, I, I, they are telling me over and over again what you guys are doing. This has got to stop, right? And now I mean this, each of you are saying, you're like, I'm with Paul, I'm with Apollos, I'm with Cephas, I'm with Christ, right? And listen, what he's going to call them out for can't have anything to do with the gospel. Yeah. It can't have anything to do, it has to have done with style of how Paul, uh, how Paul preached or how Cephas preached or, or how Apollos preached, right? And it takes a special kind of holier-than-thou person to add into that, well, I'm of Christ, <laughs> right? But you know how we get, people are kind of attracted to the style, and we hear about the stories of, of Peter, we meet him in person, he's just like kind of a man's man, who's like kicking things around, and if he had a cigar and a road of Harley, maybe, I kind of picture him, that kind of guy, he would be that today, and then there's pa Apollo, who would have been super polished, he could go anywhere in society, and people would flock to him, probably really good looking, he just came off perfectly succinct, and then of course, Jesus Christ, but you know, he's saying, look, it's, it's, you didn't miss the message on the gospel. You're making it about the people. You're taking it off point, right? Paul himself was described kind of interestingly as a man small in size, bald-headed, bandy-legged, and a unibrow, eyebrows meeting, it says, <laughs> and he had a rather hooked nose. This is in a, um, a pseudographical work um, called The Acts of Paul and Thecla, and this is kind of an interesting comic book story. But anyway, that's one of the descriptions of Paul in there. If you want, you can take it for what it is. So he says a bunch of rhetorical questions. Is Christ divided? Paul wasn't crucified, were you? Was he? <laughs> 
Were you in fact baptized in the name of Paul? And now I baptize you in the name of Paul and of Paul and of Paul. No, it's in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? We say that. And I thank God I didn't baptize any of you except for Crispus and Gaius. And then there was another guy, I don't know, Stephanus. In other words, he says, I don't remember whether I baptized anybody else, but that's not the point. Christ didn't send me to baptize. (laughs) I wasn't there to baptize. (laughs) He was there for the gospel. Baptism comes after that. It's a response to the gospel. It's an act of obedience because you hear the gospel and there's the water. Let me just get dunked right now. I can't do anything else but obey, right? So he wasn't with clever speech so that the cross of Christ wouldn't become useless, right? But how often, how alike is this today that we hear the fancy messages, uh, radio, TV, or whatever, personality preachers out there, and things have not changed. If there was Instagram account, maybe Apollos and and Cephas would be checking their likes every day after every sermon, like how many new followers uh, do I have? People are just that way, they want that. And so Paul's mission was to do what? Well, it was to preach the gospel. So it wouldn't be lost in any fancy talk. Why? Because, like I said, we haven't changed in 2,000 years. We like quotable quotes. We like the little stickers that go on our shirts and our, our, our mugs, little Christian wall art and things like that, right? And there's nothing in and of itself that's wrong with that. But if it becomes what you believe, and that's what you're quoting, rather than the holy, rich words that are alive and true of God, you're missing the point, right? So he says, I didn't come to preach, I didn't come to baptize, I came to do what? Preach the gospel, right? Why? Because anything else I do other than that, it, it makes it useless. The word here in the Greek is kinothe, and you might have in your translation, it might mean emptied of power, lose its power, or of no effect, right? So if I dazzle you with everything else, and it's not about the gospel, but in the, um, well, think of it this way. Paul really could have addressed him and say, look, I'm going to have a seminar now for you guys, and uh, we're going to do like six ways to not be divided as a church. (laughs) Ten easy ways to stop divisions, right? Fourteen basic principles for how to, do you see my point? No. He gets them back to the gospel. That'll fix everything. The gospel's the fix for all that. But the message of the cross is foolishness for those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Now, this message here is the gospel. This is the logos, the message about the cross. And it's no wonder the world doesn't get it because it mocks it as foolish. It can't be that easy. It can't be that simple. Eh, walk away. Something else. I want the seminar. I want the six easy steps. I don't want just to bend the knee. I want all the little steps on how to, how to live that, and I'm not going to do it anyway. I'm just going to get another book next week and I go to a different seminar, right? The Romans couldn't tolerate the idea of a God that would die, let alone a son of a God to die, right? But the defining quality of these people is that they are perishing. They are perishing. This makes no sense to lost people. People who are lost, they're not even looking for a way out. They don't grasp their need salvation if I just tossed you a life preserver right now would have no context you don't need it that's how lost people are they don't need to be saved they don't even know they're lost right they're perishing but to those of us who are being saved so Paul here gives this fabulous truth there's only two people in the world who are they the perishing and those who are being saved and notice those who are perishing and who those who are being saved. Notice you can perish all on your own. There are perishing. 
right? But you can only be saved. Someone outside of you has to do the saving, all right? And these groups of, of us, called the sanctified saints, he divides out into the perishing and those who are being saved. And notice the ending of that word is the exact same, menois, apolymenois for the perishing, and sozomenois for those who are being saved. They have that participle, means it's an ongoing action. Literally, it's saying the dead who are dying and the saved who are being saved, right? And it's from that same root word about Jesus being our savior. The root Greek word there is sozo, right? And ultimately, it comes back to what? The power of God. So from here, Paul reminds us, it is written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise. I'll thwart the cleverness of the intelligent, right? And he loosely quotes back here to Isaiah uh, 29. It's God's reminder that his plans are going to be a surprise for everybody, and they did surprise everyone. That's exactly what happened at the cross. Where's the wise man? Where's the expert in Mosaic law? Where's the debater of the age? Basically nails all the different categories of people who reject here, and he asks all these historical questions with the one basic simple answer. Where are they? They're nowhere. Has God not made the wisdom of the world foolish? Rhetorical question again. Well, yes, he has. He's made it completely foolish. For the wisdom of God, in the wisdom of God, the world, by its wisdom, didn't know God. All right. So God is pleased to save those who believe by the foolishness of what? By the foolishness of preaching. Why? Because that's how you hear the truth, and that's what ends up saving you, right? For since the wisdom of God, the world by its wisdom did not know God, God was pleased to save those who believe by the foolishness of preaching. But what did the Jews want? The Jews demanded a sign. He's going to talk about the signs later on about this as well. But remember Jesus told them the only sign that they would get, do you remember what it was? The sign of Jonah, the sign of Jonah. An evil and adulterous generation asked for a sign, Jesus said, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. And the Greeks ask for wisdom, but we preach about a crucified Christ, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, right? Now, Jesus had predicted his death. He had told them over and over and over again that he would be dying. And they couldn't grasp it. They wouldn't see it. They couldn't possibly believe that's what it was. But to those who are called, there were those, ecclesia, but those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, because they're all together, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than, the human, and, than hum, human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And he goes to them, he says, now you think about your circumstances, all right? Think about your call when you were here, and God ecclesia you, and he called you out, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were born into a privileged position. But listen, God chose, God chose, God chose. Again, it goes back to you had nothing to do with this. God shows what the world is, thinks is foolish, that's you, to shame the wise. God shows what the world thinks is weak, that's us, to shame the strong. God shows what is low, that's me, and despise, that's all of us in the world, what is regarded as nothing, to set aside what is regarded as something so that no one can boast in his presence. Why? Because we would boast. <laughs> if it was about me, I would boast. 
He, God is the reason you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. God didn't look down, pick you and go, oh, I'm so glad I got her. <laughs> Woo, she almost went Mormon. <laughs> I got her. Nope. God, he is the reason you have a relationship with Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. I got nothing. Paul's saying, and I'm hearing it. We have nothing. Thank God. Oh, I make it about me, right? I already struggle with that as it is, right? He, God, again, is the reason you have a relationship with Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I didn't come with superior eloquence or wisdom as I proclaim the testimony of God. Remember that Paul had come to them from Athens. He lived with them. Actually, he worked his job as a tent maker with Priscilla and Aquila. And we get that term from missionaries who work on the field. We call them tent makers to this day because it was what Paul did. He made tents back then. I came and I didn't come with superior. I just sat around making tents, talking to people. And I proclaimed the testimony of God. Boy, could he proclaim it because he got, he got it right in his face when he, when he changed his life around by the power of God. I decided, though, to, to be concerned about nothing among you except Jesus Christ. Because he could have told his tale, and he did. But he could have made it about that. And then I was on the road to Damascus. And the light and the sound and the horse and the things and the dust and my feet. All he would go into. The, no, Christ crucified I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my conversion and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith wouldn't be based on human wisdom, but on the power of God. Now, we do not speak wisdom among the mature, but, a, but not a wisdom of this age, of these rulers of this age who are perishing. Instead, we speak the wisdom of what? God hidden in a mystery that God determined before the ages for our glory. So there's a simplicity to the gospel that anyone can grasp. We, we teach it every Sunday at church with the kids. They don't have a hard time. And we teach the exact same. Honestly, we teach the exact same thing in here with you guys. If you've ever sat in on me teaching with the kids on Sunday, it's basically the exact same thing. Right? I might use a bigger, longer word every now and then, but Jesus died on the cross to save you. You get that. I get that. The kids get it. We can add the bigger words, but it's that simplicity of the gospel that anyone can grasp, right? But don't forget the expectation is that we're going to mature. And Paul says that some were mature and could understand the mystery. God always had his plan. In other words, Adam's sin was no surprise. And God's plan was always for the gospel of the cross. It was a plan before the ages, he says. And it's a plan that's going to end ultimately in our glory. It's not a mystery as in something that no one can figure out. A biblical mystery is different. It's something that you would never have known unless it was, the word is apocalypto, unless it was re revealed to you, right? None of the rulers of this age understood it. If they had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, the highest praise of who Jesus is. Rulers of this age are the human rulers who crucified Jesus. Remember, it was Stephen that was being martyred. And Paul held the coats at his feet while he was being stoned to death. He's the one that preached that the Jewish leaders crucified Jesus. 
who had proven himself to be God's chosen one, but they crucified him. But this was by the what? What did, what did he say? By the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. All right? So what's the mystery? That Jesus, the Lord of glory, a title above all other titles, Jesus is the one that would go to the cross not as a victim. We don't look at Jesus on the cross and say, oh, it's so sad. Oh, that happened. No, this was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He didn't go as a victim. He went as a victor, a conqueror. But it's foolishness. We don't see that. We don't grasp it in that way. But this was part of the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. But just as it was written, things that no eye has seen, ear has heard, mind imagined, are the things that God has prepared for those who what? Love him. him. That's you. That's the people he's talking to. And the comforting part of this verse is the idea that there are things out there that we can't imagine. Maybe we think of them like heaven, but that's not what he's talking about. No one could have possibly imagined that the Savior of the world would be Jesus and that he'd hang on a cross. That's the mystery. That's what he's talking. No one could, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind imagined the things that God prepared for those who love him. That's what he's talking about. That's what's been revealed, right? But we don't need to just imagine it anymore, do we? Eyes have seen now. Ears have heard. And what had God revealed? Well, Genesis began with Jesus in mind and moved forward toward the climax of the cross and ultimately to the resurrection. The Old Testament then is an escalating series moving us to that one point. Right? The mystery about Jesus going to the cross, the glory of the cross, and Paul then adds the next great truth about what the cross has given us, the Holy Spirit. No one could have imagined that either, right? And he hammers home the difference in the sanctified and the unsanctified, the spiritual and the natural. Listen, this was nothing that could have been discovered by the wisdom of man. No, only God could have revealed it, and he did. So too, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit of who is of God, so that we may know the things that are freely given to us by God. And we speak about these things, not with words taught us by human wisdom, but with those taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. Paul says we can know this by the, spiritual, by the spirit of God that every believer has access to. And we can understand the mystery and we can understand the message. And the unbeliever does not receive the things of the Spirit. They're not the called out ones, not yet. They don't receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. And how many of you have had those tough conversations you feel like you are talking to a paper plate? <laughs> I'd say a brick wall, but they're really flimsy. Their arguments they try to come up with, they just don't understand how flimsy they, they are, right? Your foolishness to those people. And you get it now if you have the spirit of God. But he can't understand it because these things are spiritually discerned. The one who is spiritual discerns all things, all things. Yet he himself is understood by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord? So as to advise him, a rhetorical question, well, no one. Remember Job, right? Where were you? No one has understood, but we have the mind of Christ. 
All right? This is why we understand and appreciate what we've been given. We are not like the world. We don't have the spirit of the world. We have the spirit of God. The word for spiritual is pneumaticos or pneumaticos. It has this ikus ending in the Greek. Anytime you see an ikus ending, it has to do with being characterized by something if you're looking at the Greek. So brothers and sisters, he says, I could not speak to you, though, as spiritual people. I'm talking to you as if you're not spiritual people, but instead as people of the flesh, infants in Christ, right? I fed you milk, not solid food, for you weren't even ready. In fact, you're still not ready, <laughs> right? For you're still influenced by the flesh, since there is still, and what's the symptom of that? Jealousy, dissension among you. You're not influenced by the, f and, and, and um, are you not influenced by the flesh and behaving like the unregenerate people, like these mere humans, right? For whenever someone says, I'm with Paul, or I'm with Apollos, right? Are you not just merely human when you talk like that? What is Apollos really? What is Paul? Servants. The Greek word here is diakonos, diakonos. Dia is thoroughly, and konos means dust. It means to thoroughly raise up dust as you move along, like shuffling your feet, like a waiter. It's a busboy, basically. We get our word deacon from it. The church deacons are diakonos, right? They're busy doing God's work. Servants whom you came to believe. And each of us in the ministry the Lord gave us were the diaconos, were the servants, were the busboys for Jesus. You don't go into the middle of town and see a statue lifted up to a busboy, right? But they're trying to do that with Apollos and Cephas and him, elevate them. He says, no, we're the busboys, right? And he goes, look, I planted, Apollos watered, but it's God who caused it to grow. I put the little seeds in, that was great. Apollos comes along and waters it, that was great too. But God is the one who causes the growth, right? So neither one who plants accounts for anything, nor the one who waters, but God who causes the growth. Now the one who plants and the one who waters works as one, but each will receive his reward according to his work. We're co-workers belonging to God. You are God's field. And then he kind of shifts this metaphor. He talks about this building metaphor now. According to the grace of God given me like a skilled master builder. He's talking of himself kind of like a general contractor in this phrase here. I laid a foundation, but someone else built on it. And each one must be careful how he builds. No one can lay any foundation other than that is being laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold and silver or precious stones, and that Greek word there, precious stones, is like quarry stones, marble, not like you know diamonds and jewels and things like that. You wouldn't build a building out of that. You would decorate it later with it, maybe. <laughs> if anyone builds foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each builder's work will be plainly seen, for the day will make it clear, because it will be revealed by fire. And when you get to that fire talk, you're like, wait, what? Fire? We're going to be burned up? Our works will, if they are combustible. What's combustible on this list? Wood, hay, and straw. So as he's talking about building, he's saying, look, you're not going to mix your materials. You're going to build on all solid stuff, gold and silver and these quarry stones, these marble, precious stones like that. You're not going to layer in with that a whole area filled with wood maybe but it'll burn hay straw it'll all just collapse on that he's no you're building that so it's not going to burn right but the builder's work is going to be made clear because it's going to be revealed by fire and the fire will test what each work has done so he goes into this talk about this idea of believers being judged and actually the idea of believers being judged is throughout the um, judgment in general is throughout the bible um we see judgment on the cross, it's the first judgment, and that's the final one, it's already taken place, it's over with and done with, and Christ took that judgment 
on himself. That is the main judgment there. But there are judgments to come, and these are important to look out for. First of all, there's going to be a judgment on Israel. This is mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 20, right? They need to repent, turn to Christ. They are going to be judged. There's going to be a judgment in the general of the nations. This is mentioned in Matthew chapter 25, judgment of Israel, Ezekiel 20. Judgment of the nations in Matthew 25. Then in judgment of Satan and demons. Yeah, we want that one. It caused us a lot of trouble, right? Jude 6 talks about that. The judgment of the unsaved, Revelation 20. And then finally, the judgment of the work of believers. This is mentioned here in 1 Corinthians 3. And it says in Romans 4, Every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. We tested as through fire. If what someone has built survives, he will receive a reward. If someone's work is burned up, he's going to suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Why? Because fire tests in the literal sense of testing, like you test a metal. And you bring forth what is actually worthwhile of keeping. And if what you've been building by naming off Apollos, naming off Cephas, division, dissension, bickering, quarreling, jealousy, greed, all these things, that's all hay and stubble. It's all going to be burned up. That's for nothing. We need to have our foundation on the things that last because it matters and there will be a judgment he says in verse 16 now do you not know that y'all all y'all it's like he's getting southern here the greek word here for the you is hard because if you don't see it in the greek you'll miss it but they have a plural form of the you so it's all y'all so he's talking about all of them all along and he says all of you guys you are all a god's temple and god's spirit lives in you all of you as a collective now later on in Corinthians, he's going to talk about us individually as a temple but right now he's addressing all of us as a collective right so if someone destroys god's temple god's going to destroy him for god's temple is holy which is what you are why because he's already addressed that you're called out ones you're sanctified saints you're holy holy ones right that's God's temple. That's where God dwells. Now, what was in their mind as a temple? Aphrodite, right? Or way over in Jerusalem because it ha hadn't been destroyed yet. Now, it's going to get destroyed in 8070. But remember, I opened my talk with when this letter was written. It would have been about 8055, right? So you get about 20, 25 more years before that temple does get destroyed. They have no idea it's coming. We know it's coming, but that temple is going to be destroyed. And so he's, he's giving an image in their mind, like, you see that temple out there? That's actually us. That can't be destroyed, right? That's, you are the church, he's saying. God's not going to let that go. If someone destroys, that is building with hay and wood and stubble and tries to make it ruined, God's going to destroy them, right? The natural people who are not in here, if they try to destroy, God's going to take care of that. And you in here, all your works that are worthless, he's going to burn all that up. God's temple is holy, and worthless things don't belong with what's holy, that's what you are, he says. So guard yourself against self-deception because we're all so prone to think, well, I'm so glad so-and-so is here to hear this message. <laughs> <laughs> or someone's <laughs> hearing Paul's letter, I'm like taking notes on her little scroll. I'm going to tell my husband Crispus when he gets back from the fields about this, right? So if someone among you thinks he's wise in this age, let him become foolish so he can become wise. For the wisdom of this age is foolishness with God. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And how many of you have felt that in your own life? Oh, God, you got me, right? And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, and he knows that they're futile. So then, no more boasting about mere mortals. For everything belongs to you. He's going to hit this really hard. Listen, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, mere mortals, <laughs> or the world or life, 
or death or the present or the future? Have I forgotten anything? I'm naming everything. Everything belongs to you, right? And you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Did God lose Christ? No, Christ won't lose you. And you have everything. Everything that we talked about. You know, for me, growing up in a Christian home, going to church, knowing about God, these are all part of my earliest memories. The ideas and the images of Jesus and the cross and Jesus dying for my sins, they're, they're woven into my memories as a child. I sing songs like Washed in the Blood <laughs> as a little kid. The old rugged cross. I took communion and I knew that the cup and the bread re represented Jesus' blood and his body. The cross and singing the songs of Jesus dying, as much of my story and my traditions is blowing out birthday candles and singing a birthday song. But isn't it odd? Isn't that weird? I mean, stop and think about it. Isn't it strange that the scene of a man beaten and bleeding and suffering and hanging on a splintered beam of, of wood, crying out in agony, crying out in an abandonment, should be such a familiar image to a child? And yet it is. And so familiar is this picture that I don't even strain to try to imagine it. And yet this is the exact thing that Paul comes back to when he writes to these wayward Christian church members. You're divided? Get back to the cross. You think you're wise? Get back to the cross. Jealousy? Strife? Immature faith? Get back to the cross. It's at Calvary that it all changed. You know, time is set by B.C. and A.D., before and after the birth of Christ. But our lives as Christians are reset, B.C. and A.C., before and after the cross. We wear the cross around our necks. We wear it in gold. We have precious jewels around them. We hang it on our walls. We have them designed in filigree and pewter and wood. And we place it prominently up in our churches as we gather and we sing and we pray. But we still, like the Corinthians, deal with our own weak and immature petty behaviors. And to resolve these issues, aren't we prone to seek advice from books and blogs and self-help seminars? Right? Why? because we've made the wisdom of this world more prominent than the cross. Because we have a compartment set aside for the wisdom of God in a sense. We call this compartment church, or maybe Bible study, or maybe our traditions about all that. And we keep the religious talk and the theology and the Jesus words and the traditions over there. But God reminds us that there's power in the cross and the problems that we cause in our own lives are rooted in a failure really to grasp the cross and what God has accomplished through Jesus on our behalf. And it's at Calvary where the greatest wisdom is found. It's at Calvary where the ultimate hope was found. It's at Calvary where the ultimate display of love. Paul brought the Corinthians and all their strife back to Calvary, to the cross. And that's where we need to begin today. Affirming or reaffirming the cross. Repenting of our tendency to seek worldly solutions while we let its power fade to white noise. What do you lack? Nothing. What's your identity? Christ. Sanctified. Holy. Uh, when I was born, my, my dad wrote the words to this song. And I'm going to read them here for you. Um, because they point us to the cross. I have the words printed. I'll, I'll read them off here, and then you can take them home later if you want to. But it goes like this. Many are searching for life's meaning, their future long to see. Down life's highway, they stumble and fall, plagued with uncertainty. A forked road confronts them, turn right, and life is free. Too simple is the cry of most as they walk by Calvary.
Too simple is the cry of most as they walk by Calvary. Many the blinded eyes of scoffers saying, it can't be, your God of love wouldn't visit earth as sinless humanity. They laugh at Jesus' miracles. They scorn his deity. He's dead and buried, they tell us all as they walk by Calvary. He's dead and buried, they tell us all as they walk by Calvary. Many who pass by stop and look at the man on the cruel tree. They gaze at his face and wonder why, caring not for eternity. His heart did break, his blood was shed in vain, oh can it be? Will you cling to the feet of the old rugged cross or walk by Calvary? Will you cling to the feet of the old rugged cross or walk by Calvary? Let's stand and be reminded once again who we are and the importance of coming back to the cross. Say this with me. Who am I? I am a sanctified saint who's been given grace and made rich in every way. I lack no spiritual gift as I wait Jesus' return, knowing I am strengthened to the end and will be blameless. I am part of a unique community where I have been called into fellowship because of the true account of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for me. That is who I am. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for those who've gone before us, the men and the women, the teachers in our lives who have consistently pointed us to the cross and let us be women who live up to that, that we would know nothing but you, Christ crucified, that that is our priority as we raise our children, as we raise our grandchildren, as we engage with our husbands and our friends and our co-workers, that we would know nothing but Christ crucified and keep that forefront. Help us to understand the great riches we have because of what you accomplished in your name and for our behalf. We love you, we praise you, and we re-give re our lives to you. Because everything we have is you, yours, and you have given us everything. And we ask now in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen.